episode 165, Maternal Mortality is on the Rise. Today, I speak with Juan Pablo Segura from Baby Scripts about reversing this bad trend. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The U.S. is one of the few developed nations where maternal mortality is steadily rising. It has more than doubled since 1987. But only in America. In other countries, maternal death rates have fallen sharply since 1990. In fact, the U.S. has the worst rate of maternal deaths in the developed world. Today, I speak with Juan Pablo Segura from Baby Scripts about why this is and what we can do about it. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Juan. Pleasure to be here. I am excited to speak about the state of maternity care in the United States today. It's not very good. We actually, uh, amongst developed countries, are 33rd in the world, considering how much we spend in healthcare, um, you know, more than $3 trillion a year. It's, it's insane to think that, you know, with all the tools, resources, training that we have, we're that horrible in the rankings. And even just the, the clinical conditions that moms face during their pregnancy, from the gestational diabetes rate, which hovers around 9%, to preeclampsia-related or, or blood pressure-related illnesses, which around 6% of pregnancies, there's just a, a lot of problems and not a lot of concrete, actionable solutions um, that are being offered to pregnant women. You just articulated this number 33 and the relatively poor outcomes for both infant and mother in this country. Is there a lot of disparity of care there? In other words, is it that lower you know, socioeconomic hospitals are receiving such substandard care that it's dragging down the average, but then there is a cohort where it's great? Or is this something that's pervasive regardless of what hospital and how good your insurance is? I think the problems in pregnancy care are, are multifactorial. Um, definitely some of them are access to care and just general patient constraints, right, barriers for them to, to receive care. And, and you see a lot of that um, with patients that have socioeconomic challenges that are, for example, on Medicaid and have to take three or four buses just to be able to see the doctor, right? There are those kinds of infrastructure-related challenges that, that prevent patients from getting care. There are also behavioral issues, right? It can be psychological. There are the substance abuse issue that we're seeing in this country obviously leads itself to further complications down the road. On top of all of these other issues, we think that the structure that the industry, the obstetrical community has created or has built over the last 40, 50 years is also actually a challenge to getting patients the necessary care that they need to be able to have a, a safe and healthy pregnancy. You mentioned that the structure in the obstetrical community is a barrier to advancing outcomes for patients. What, what structure are you talking about? Yeah. So the what, what I'm referring to it when I say structure is actually the visit schedule or how their their journey through their pregnancy is structured by the provider 
and what's been traditionally recommended by some of the larger kind of nonprofit advocacy organizations like the Institute of Medicine. So when you look, I'm going to do a little bit of a history lesson. So uh, bear with me. But um, about 30 years ago, the Institute of Medicine, when reviewing some of the challenges in, for example, low birth weight in this country, they actually saw that that patients around the country weren't being seen enough. And so one of the recommendations that they made to the industry was that patients needed to be seen more often in their pregnancy in the hopes of improving outcomes. And so one of the things that the industry ended up adopting was essentially a template model where every pregnant patient needed to be seen around 14 times. Um, and so if you fast forward 30 years, the cost of care has tripled, right, in managing pregnancy, but actually low birth weight, the, the rate of low birth weight has actually created a, a huge inefficiency in, in redirecting resources to patients that need the, the care throughout their pregnancy. And, and so when we talk about you know, the structure, we think that the, the current kind of template, 14 visit schedule, one size fits all approach to managing pregnancy is antiquated and, and needs to be updated to more of a risk specific model um, that allows providers to see patients more or less often depending on the risk that they have as patients. Did you just say that despite the fact that 30 years has gone by and the cost of care has tripled, that low birth weight remains an issue even today? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The incidence of low birth weight has actually increased um, over the last 30 years. And so, you know, again, when you when you think about, OK, sometimes the industry tries to throw everything in the kitchen sink into solving a problem. Um, we have to really be very thoughtful about, you know, what is pregnancy is it a disease? Is it a condition that needs to be managed? And from our approach and from what we've tried to do with technology is look at pregnancy as not a disease, but um, as a condition that, you know, majority of patients suffer no complications from. You know, when you really look at where all the problems come from, um, it's a subset of the pregnancy population as a whole. Um, and that's typically the high risk patients. And so we, we believe that technology can start to layer in or allow providers, give providers the confidence to start kind of automating certain parts of kind of healthy pregnancy care and spend more time training resources, education on the patients that have the most challenges, have the high risk situations and need the, the consultations the most. And that's pretty well initiated. I'm not sure if that's a word, you know, <laughs> throughout the, the rest of the industry. It's a pretty well-known fact that you know, depending on where you look, 5% of the patients constitute 90 or 80% of costs, for example. And I don't think that anyone would think to themselves, okay, you know, you've got this healthy, fit person who should be seen at the doctor the same amount of times as someone who's got, you know, multimorbid diabetes and cardiovascular and lower back pain. I'm almost struggling to, to try to figure out how for 30 years there's been no feedback loop. Once you get someone to change something, right, um, particularly on, on the provider side where clinical workflows are rigorously vetted, they require a lot of approval, there's obviously risk from a liability perspective, malpractice, et cetera, um, I think people entrench themselves and they also develop certain biases, right, in, in particularly in pregnancy. Um, the pregnancy journey is, is a beautiful one. It's an, an intimate process between both patient and provider where a lot of information is being relayed. 
uh, patients' bodies change considerably. Um, and so, you know, there, there's some biases that are created from those interactions where, for example, providers might think that they have to see a, a patient X amount of times because if they don't, then the patient will be less satisfied and then they won't come back for an additional procedure or after the pregnancy. And so I think it's a variety of things um, that have created this current structure. Um, some of it obviously well-intentioned from the, you know, hey, let's just make sure every patient gets seen as much as possible so that we catch something. But you have to look at, you know, what, what actually is effective and what's a, a waste of resources and money. And conversation's been happening, but, um, you know, I think now more than ever, given everything that's changed in the, back tri- the, back, the background, like, you know, the Affordable Care Act, regulatory changes, I think this is the perfect opportunity for us to really rethink how pregnancy is managed in this country, particularly with technology. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that is actually the definition of evidence-based care. You attempt an intervention or using the best information that you have, you plan out a, a care pathway, the intervention happens, and then you measure how well it worked and adjust accordingly. So it, it sort of sounds like that's the plan. What's the global fee? So I know you were talking about the average patients has 14 visits with their obstetrician prior to giving birth. Is that something which is even more instilled because of the economics of the global fee? I think it's interesting how one thing then follows the other. And so if you think about it, if most patients are being seen the exact same amount of time or there's this expectation around a specific number of consultations or interactions, which is this number 14. And again, there are always caveats. For example, in pregnancy care, there are specialists called maternal fetal medicine doctors that, you know, if a patient is very high risk and is able to get referred to a a super specialist like an MFM, maternal fetal medicine doctor, um, then, you know, the interactions change. Um, But in general, um, you know, because of this broad-based recommendation, I think the insurance industry also understood the the opportunity of saying, hey, if there's kind of one template, one size fits all approach to managing every pregnancy in the country, um, and so the the global fee, what you're referring to, is the method in which providers, OBGYNs in this country, are paid for managing all of the prenatal care. So it's one lump sum payment. Doesn't matter if patients go in 40 times or five times to see their general OBGYN. Um, the providers paid this lump sum payment for all of the prenatal care, the time spent delivering the child, and most of the time the postpartum consult that happens about six weeks after the delivery. That structure has been in place for decades. And I mean, to answer your question, the structure obviously uh, allows the the insurance company to kind of decrease their risk of overutilization, um, but it does create some constraints on the provider side for thinking about, you know, how do they innovate around um, new care models, new practices, and and obviously delivering better care. In a way, that global fee sounds like a very early bundle. Does the global fee mandate that there are 14 visits or does it pretty much just say provide this patient with care and then it is an industry guideline, the 14 visit thing? Yeah. So so essentially what most global fees require is for there to be a minimum amount of visits. So I said five. That's typically the lower bound. So if a patient gets seen less than five times, typically then the consults are fee for service. But after five, then most of the the consults are lumped together in this global fee concept. And the 14 number, again, comes from 
this kind of collaboration with in groups like the Institute of Medicine and others like ACOG, where they kind of looked at the, the journey of a high risk patient and the journey of a low risk patient and kind of together kind of combine them saying, okay, what, what's, what's the, the best way to catch as many problems as possible? And obviously, that's, that's how things were put together. And, and I know I'm not doing the, the history of the 14 visit schedule complete justice, because obviously, this is a short podcast. It's a combination of factors and screening kind of tools and mechanisms that have created that. But again, the the question that we have to keep asking ourselves is, if a patient is low risk, if we are able to do things more efficiently at home through technology, are we able to reallocate time and, for example, take physician energy and resources from low risk pregnancies to high risk pregnancies? You know, the one thing that I'm noting with value-based care, there is a minimum quality that has to be obtained, generally speaking. You know, if, yep. you're, if you're looking at a bundled payment model of a, pretty much pick any one, you know, any of the complete joint replacement ones or any of the CV ones, you know, like there has, there's definitely outcomes, well, quality, let's just say broadly, that are in play there. Whereas with this global fee, it, it sort of just sounds like, okay, you know, just manage them. And it's a very capitated affair. Yeah, well, what's what's important to to understand too is we think about, you know, how do we move forward in in, in prenatal care and obstetrical care. Um, I think you you have to look at the the data, and if you look at the results in this industry, six visits has proven to be the optimal amount or the necessary amount of visits during the pregnancy to screen and detect a majority of the problems that could happen in pregnancy. And so everything after six visits has a, an incredible diminishing return for the cost that's going into right the the, the structure, the the visit schedule, et cetera. And so when you think of okay, if, if the data is indicating that six visits is optimal and we're at fourteen, there's some cognitive dissonance there. And so again, you know the the quality perspective obviously has has been researched quite rigorously in the space. But again, you know, I think the the structure is very antiquated and and how we tried to solve some of those early problems in the 80s uh, might have not have been the, the right ap- approach. And and so yeah, this this structure again is is very the global fee, right? It's it's nice for the insurance company. It creates kind of an expectation and obviously a predictability of, about, you know, how much someone's going to get paid for managing the pregnancy, but you know, there there has to be obviously a a, a shift given everything that we're still facing as a country and maternal outcomes and and issues with this current structure. Yeah, I know that every time a European has a baby in the United States, they are shocked and amazed at how many times, how many visits there are, you know, in in Europe. This is definitely. Yeah. And and it's not and it's not to say and maybe one thing to clarify is so I'm not saying that like the global fee is a bad arrangement. What I'm excited about is not necessarily transforming the global fee. Because the global fee, if you think about it, has some has some kind of challenges, but also has some great opportunities. Because if providers, so if they're able to find efficiencies while maintaining quality, um, they can actually get paid more money. I think that the global fee concept, like a bundle, et cetera, um, encourages innovation. And I think that's one of the the exciting things about how this industry has has accepted a structure that 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 in and of itself creates a lot of inherent innovation. Um, the question, though, is can the industry kind of twist or or can it reshuffle its priorities and have the willingness to innovate instead of kind of being stuck in this old 
thinking, this old structure of 14 visits is what needs to happen in a pregnancy. Yeah, I'm kind of horrified, I have to say, that you've got outcomes which are not improving, you know, at best. And has there been any other movements or initiatives or, you know, what is ACOG doing? Or could we take this as the United States might not care a whole lot about mothers and babies because there's just been such little attention that has been placed on this whole conversation? Well, I don't want to indict the United States of America. There was uh, actually but, in Vox recently, yeah. which I just remembered right now, a, a kind of lengthy article that sort of was an indictment. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of indictment going on right now, by the way. I'm, we're based in Washington, D.C., and I'm surrounded by it, which is kind of horrifying. But at the same time, I think they're definitely I mean, when you when you look at outcomes in other places in Europe, People have embraced this concept that pregnancy is, again, it's not a, a disease, it's not an illness, and resources need to be allocated to the right patients at the right time. While things are challenging here in the U.S., it's not to say that people haven't started rethinking care and how to better administer pregnancy care. For example, there are some programs run by nurse midwives that essentially do group prenatal care that has shown some great results in terms of patient education, patient empowerment, even downstream outcomes. There are some other technology like version one initiatives, something, for example, called Text for Baby that has used simple mediums like texting to power education and to get meaningful content into the, the hands of a patient. So it's not, it's not like no one's trying, but I think the issue is that we haven't created a movement to really rethink care in, as a whole. And, you know, this is where I selfishly step in. I think having a vision for a very specific kind of prenatal care that, that is an alternative, I think can start to dislodge some of the old workflows, biases, and other challenges that have existed in the space. Without a vision, it's hard to know where you're going. You know, it almost sounds like there hasn't been anyone laying out a version of, of what good really looks like or what could we hope to achieve. And in the absence of that direction and that vision, then you are kind of just treading water where you are. And it's just fine. Thank you very much. Well, but I, I also think the innovations that have come about in the last, I'd say, 10 years have really created a tipping point, I'd say like now, because these technologies, and I'm referring mostly to a smartphone, right? Ubiquitous connectivity, um, and now layering onto the smartphone, even things like internet-connected medical devices, think opportunity to touch a patient meaningfully at any moment, at any time. I think one of the issues that the, the industry is facing is the fact that there's a shortage of providers in this country. There are not enough OBGYNs, there are not enough MFMs, so we look at, okay, we need to solve this problem. Typically, it's like, all right, let's bulk up the resources. Let's, let's direct more funding, more personnel, et cetera, into some specific area. Well, it takes 10 years. Problems are so resource-centered. And so you know, we think that given the environment that we're now operating in where there is endless and seamless connectivity, maybe that can be that crucial third leg of the stool that we can actually now build upon you have mentioned the idea of spending more time with patients that are at risk and spending less time with patients that aren't. And that has direct connectivity to, I think, the point that you just made, which is 
there's a shortage of obstetricians. There's just not enough in the country. And then, of course, finances are always a constraint. So if you have a shortage of obstetricians and the ever-present financial rate critical, then if you're going to actually give care to really high-risk patients who might need more than 14 visits or really need some extra hand-holding, you simply don't have the wherewithal to do it if all of your time is currently occupied with these, let's just say, lower-value hours, which are being spent with patients who may not require quite the attention. Yeah, and I, and I think what's important as we think about, okay, how can we make or how can we take that leap from old to new, right? How, how can we right size and, and better appropriate kind of time, energy, resources, right? Personnel, so OBGYNs and, and physician extenders, et cetera, in the space. You know, how do we get them from, you know, this drawn out, overextended paradigm to this more risk-specific paradigm, which needs to be where we go as an industry, I believe that, and this is what we've talked a lot about it from, from our company's perspective, is that technology, commodity technology, right? So smartphones, internet-connected medical devices can be the, the conduit, the key that gives providers confidence that their lower-risk patients are doing fine, right? So that so we're collecting the, the data that's that needs to be collected in, in the background at home through these devices and these technologies. And through that confidence, that then is the lever that can push a provider to actually change the way that they're managing and caring for their patients. And, and that comfort or that confidence is the key to being able to evolve as a system um, to, you know, this, this newer model or this, this better approach, at least in my opinion, which is managing patients according to their risk and really retooling resources so that the patients that are the sickest get the most care. And I could also see that if there is a you know, patient who's very low risk, I'm sure she's got a whole lot better things to do than go to the obstetrician 14 times. So from a patient satisfaction standpoint, which is one of the things that you brought up before, I could easily see a patient being more satisfied, actually not having to trundle into the office so often. We haven't even talked about, right, the, the patient opportunities of this and what happens when you do make the shift into this new model of care, this new paradigm. You know, one of the, the things that needs to happen, and, and, you know, we're talking a lot about the problems, right, where we've been talking a lot about the, the current state of prenatal care, how it's antiquated, how we're not able to get the necessary resources to the right kind of patients. But a lot of that change that needs to happen, I think some of the, the issues that, that have blocked that change from happening are cultural, right? It's what people are comfortable with. But those cultural biases that are developed, right, patients need to be seen this amount of time. I need to practice care in this way. Um, I talked about confidence earlier. A lot of what we have to do as a company, as a tech movement, as innovators is really force providers, give providers the confidence necessary to, for example, manage their practice virtually. And unfortunately, providers don't just have outcomes to worry about. They have a business to worry about, right? So patient satisfaction is crucial nowadays since there's so much competition in the marketplace. There, there, are, there are large health systems that are acquiring practices and offering kind of holistic approaches, right, to managing families and patients. And so when, when we think about, okay, what does a patient want? What would they appreciate? 
It also has to reconcile nicely with what is a provider, you know, comfortable hanging their hat on, you know, how can they run their business based on, you know, the changes that need to occur. And so, you know, I've been talking a lot about the provider, the provider, the provider. Um, but when you think about, okay, it, introducing technology to patients, yeah, patients have a, a very different life today than they had 30 years ago, right? This whole concept of the internet didn't exist 24/7 connectivity, the expectations of a, of the consumer economy, where you know we're we're constantly looking for the best service, for the best experience. Um, I think this is a challenge that providers now have to think about, and using or leaning on technology can be a a, a crucial uh, and a vehicle to be able to, to to actually compete in this new normal where you know convenience has a value this day and age. Moms are working; they don't have a lot of time to go see the doctor for four hours you know, take time off of work, drive to the doctor's office through traffic, pay for parking, wait in the waiting room, get seen for five to 10 minutes, and then have to go back to work and continue their day-to-day life, right? So so there's there's so many factors here that I think are perfectly pushing the industry right now to change. And the question is, do we have the willpower to see that change through? Indeed. And this might be the perfect time for me to ask you a question that your PR person teed up here. So you ready? Oh, oh, I'm I'm worried. (laughs) How can the use of new remote monitoring tools like baby scripts usher in a potential one fourth reduction in maternal deaths in pregnancy? What a great question. It's almost like it was planted. You know? <laughs> uh, so something you have to know about baby scripts, and we haven't talked at all about what we do as a company. We're a new model for managing pregnancy that uses, again, smartphones and internet-connected medical devices to remote monitor patients in between appointments and to generate about 10 times the amount of touch points that typically happen in the office instead at home through our software and solution. And so part of what we do, a big part of what we do is we remote monitor blood pressure. Blood pressure is a core metric in managing pregnancy. One of the biggest complications that you can get as a patient is something called preeclampsia. It's a blood pressure-related illness that could be fatal, can lead to strokes, series of of consequences downstream even after the delivery. Um, We're actually now seeing that patients that are hypertensive prenatally actually are at higher risk for hypertension issues after the birth and, and later on in life. So when you think of, you know, one of the reasons why prenatal care as a category exists is actually is to manage blood pressure. And, you know, you were referencing a, an important kind of metric, which is about 25% of maternal deaths are related to hypertensive disorders in some manner. It's not all preeclampsia. It's, there are other things that, that can occur, help syndrome, et cetera. But, you know, if, if baby scripts is given to enough pregnant women and pregnant women's blood pressure is being monitored on a weekly, bi-weekly, you know, every other day basis. Think about the number of touch points, interventions that could be produced from this kind of monitoring. And, and so we think that, you know, connecting moms, um, getting them uh, remote monitored during their pregnancy and having that virtual outlet for, for patients um, can create a completely different standard of care that, again, is, is focused on detecting problems when they occur, um, not much later after, you know, they run their course and affect patients in negative manners. I'm assuming that Baby Scripts is kind of a, a combination of an app and a platform that patient comes in day one, their first visit to the obstetrician, and they're given this app and told how to use it. Yeah. So 
yeah, so pretty important about our, our program. Yeah, it's a combination of both an app and the delivery of, of a box. It's called a mommy kit um, that has uh, IoT devices inside. It can be a blood pressure cuff, a weight scale, blood glucometer. Depends on what the doctor wants to give to the patient. And I, I emphasize the doctor because our solution can only be accessed if a provider, so a physician, uh, a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, actually onboards a patient onto the experience. So it's almost like a prescription drug where you need to be invited. There, it needs to be dispensed from the doctor to the patient. And yeah, again, it can be administered in a variety of ways depending on the situation that the patient's facing. Are they a low-risk pregnancy? Are they a higher-risk pregnancy? Um, you know, we offer different experiences for different kinds of patients, like gestational diabetes. And we even do work in the postpartum space for postpartum depression screening. So, you know, we, we are, we're very focused on using apps and other kind of internet-connected devices and, and technologies to clinically manage and to clinically assist patients as they go through their, their pregnancy. This is helpful even in, because I was kind of thinking that this would be a really good way to treat low-risk pregnancies as a way to ensure that between visits, the patient didn't decline in some way and then it didn't get picked up. But it also sounds like this kit is, is equally useful, even if in a high-risk situation where the patient is actually coming in the full you know, 14 or more times to ensure that things didn't go south, even between the shorter interval between those patient visits. Sure. To your point, it definitely can apply to, to both populations. When we started the company, we were actually very focused on low risk because of the opportunity to, number one, make care more convenient for the patient. If you think about what happens at every prenatal visit, blood pressure and weight are, are taken and recorded and then questions are answered. Um, so we saw a lot of redundancy in a lot of prenatal care. And we said, hey, let's make that available, the, those kind of core components. Let's administer those at home with internet connected medical devices, making, you know, obviously allowing us to generate 10 to 20 times the amount of data that's typically captured in the clinic. Now we can do that at home. And again, we can generate a lot more of that, obviously allowing us to produce more interventions, deliver better care, um, but also make the patient's journey more convenient because if we're doing so much work at home, they don't have to come in as often. So, you know, that's how we started. But We've really we've always seen high risk as an incredible opportunity, given that most of the complications still revolve around excessive weight gain, hypertension, um, diabetes in pregnancy. And so you can use the same technology in a different manner um, to remote monitor these patients that really need a lot more attention, a lot more monitoring, and obviously can really benefit from a more precise application of care. I guess based on knowing the patient or maybe actual data, it's up. it would be up to the provider office to figure out that this is a low-risk patient and give them the low-risk box and this is a high-risk patient that's susceptible to this, you know, preeclampsia or, or gestational diabetes and then give them a different package. Exactly. Yeah, everything is provider-delivered and, and uh, it's delivered at the discretion of the provider. You know, we're not clinicians, you know, from a technology perspective, we assist the physicians and, and we make their lives easier, but they're the ones still responsible for care, which is important. If someone is interested in learning more about BabyScripts, where would you send them for additional information? You can go to uh, getbabyscripts.com or follow us on Twitter. We're pretty active on Twitter. 
really sharing what's happening in the space and also some of the developments that happen with our company. And we do a lot of research. And so we're publishing a lot and we're talking a lot about this kind of next iteration or vision for prenatal care that that needs to happen sooner rather than later. Juan, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you very much. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.